This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strimple. In the traditional picture of mid-ocean ridges, the lithosphere thins to more or less nothing along the spreading axis between two diverging oceanic plates. New oceanic material emerges from volcanoes along the ridge, which are supplied by magma generated by mantle that melts as it decompresses on the way up to the sea floor. But while this seems to fit the observations of some mid-ocean ridges, it is at odds with many others, especially the ridges that are spreading slowly. Instead, the plate thickness on the spreading axis can be as much as 7 kilometers, and it is movement along the faults in the plate at the spreading axis that accommodates the plate divergence. So, what determines whether it is volcanism or faulting that occurs on mid-ocean ridges? Matilda Canat is a research director at the Institut de Physique du Globe of Paris. Her research on mid-ocean ridges has fundamentally changed our understanding of the geological processes that create new oceanic crust at these ridges. And she also established that these processes vary dramatically between slow-spreading ridges and fast-spreading ridges, and even along the axis of a given ridge. Mathilde Canin, welcome to Geology Bites. Thank you. Before we talk about our current understanding of mid-ocean ridges, can you remind us of the traditional view? Initially, the ridges were described from the point of view of being volcanic chains. The new plates or the new lithosphere that was being formed would then move away from the ridge and become oceanic plates. The process was mostly volcanism, that the space between the two plates as they move apart would be filled by magma and this magma would crystallize depending on the depth, forming different types of rocks, gabbros or dikes that would feed eruptions at the seafloor. If that traditional view was the case, we would expect to see pillow lavas, dikes and so on everywhere coming out of these mid-ocean ridges. But that's not what we see in all cases. We do actually see pillow lavas pretty much everywhere at the seafloor. But what really differs between different ridges and particularly differs between fast and slow ridges is what's underneath whether these pillow lavas are sitting on a regular system of dikes that have fed the eruptions pretty much always at the same place that you could really describe as the ridge axis, like a linear frontier between the two plates, and then a continuous domain of magmatic crystallization, like a magma chamber or a set of successive magma chambers, and then you would go into the mantle. And all of this would occur without much tectonic deformation, without much faulting. What we discovered was really the role of tectonics and faulting in this process. And this role is important. It's not two plates that are separated by a line in which there is no plate. The process of forming the new oceanic lithosphere comprises volcanism for sure, but it also comprises a process of forming a new plate in between the two diverging ones. And what controls the thickness of a plate pretty much everywhere is really the temperature, because rocks behave differently with the temperature. The hotter it gets, the easier it is to deform them. They can deform under very low stress. The notion of plate is really a mechanical notion, it's something that's more rigid, and therefore it's controlled by the distribution of temperature. 
And so if you have at your reach the balance of heat supply and heat extraction is such that your geothermal gradient would be cooler or hotter depending on this balance. And if you have a colder geothermal regime, it means that the rocks at a given depth will be cold enough to be more rigid and unable to deform other than by faulting. You said in your introduction that typically at slow ridges, this depth at which the rocks would be brittle would be seven kilometers. It's actually often much more. It can be up to 15 kilometers. And we know that because we have recordings of micro earthquakes along the ridge axis in different regions. And we see that we record micro earthquakes down to depth of 15 kilometers. So what it means is that just on axis between the two plates that are being formed, you don't have a free zone with very hot material coming up all the way to the seafloor. You've got a 15 kilometers thick plate that has to be broken if you want to separate the plates and diverge. And that's the fundamental new process that you have got to introduce. I want to go back to the nature of the sea floor. When we talked about the traditional mid-ocean ridges as being volcanic, that produces one kind of ocean floor, one kind of plate surface. What do we actually observe? Do we actually observe different kinds of sea floor? And did you conduct some of these observations yourself? I did. I spent a lot of time on ships. I've been in over 35 cruises, so it's a lot of observation and a lot of fun also. So we started by saying that we would pretty much see pillow lavas a bit everywhere. It's not completely true, and it's related to this plate thickness on axis story. In some situations, the thermal regime at the axis is such that you've got a thick plate, and then you will have to have a large faults to separate this thick plate if you want to have the divergence of the plates. And these large faults, they are large in their reach. They reach down to the base of the brittle lithosphere, but they are also uh, large in their offset. That's because they can be active for quite a long time, like up to 2 million years. And with a typical plate tectonic divergence rate of a few centimeters per year, that represents a lot of uplift. And these faults, therefore, take rocks all the way from the mantle and bring them up to the seafloor. But while they are doing that, there is also some volcanism and magmatism involved. And as they are being uplifted by the faults, they are also cross-cut and intruded by magmatic products. And therefore, what you get at the end is a lithosphere that is a composite. It's made of a tectonic mixture of mantle-derived material or peridotites that will be altered also by interaction with seawater. And this alteration of peridotites is called serpentinization. So you will have serpentinized peridotites mixed both tectonically and because they are intruded with the magmatic products. And so underneath this cover of pillow lavas that you see when you explore the seafloor, Depending more or less on the thermal regime and also the amount of magma that has been supplied to the ridge axis, you should expect to have a mess really of different types of rocks variably deformed and intruded by magma at different stages as they were uplifted. Is that what we actually see then? You see some pillow lavas interleaved with peridotites, interleaved with other kinds of rocks? Yeah, the pillow lavas usually rest peacefully on top of everything. So they are unbroken, they are nice. In the few places where you are able to see what's underneath, you see it's quite complex. 
By contrast, in fast-spreading regions where the thermal regime is much hotter, one of the reasons why it's much hotter is very simple. It's just that uh, again, width of actual region at a fast-spreading ridge is going to be much younger. So it will have had much less time to cool than the same width of axis at a slow ridge. That's one of the reasons why the thermal gradient is so much hotter at fast ridges. And so at fast ridges, our estimates of brittle lithosphere thickness right on axis can be as small as one or two kilometers only. And so there are some faults, but they are very minor. And so what takes over is really the magmatic processes. So you've been, as you say, on many observational trips to study the seafloor. Can you tell us about the techniques that you use to map the seafloor and whether you actually get detailed topographic maps or what the actual product of these observational trips is? So usually we combine many techniques to go from direct observation of seafloor geology with a submersible and sampling to geophysical investigations like seismic experiments. Of course, these are not the same scales. The bathymetry that allows us to map the topography is a unifying method that allows you to have a large map and then maybe nest more detailed maps acquired with a submersible near the seafloor where we can get a much better resolution. And we also use imagery using the capacity of the seafloor to reflect acoustic signals because it depends on the type of rocks and on the physical properties of the rocks. So we can infer some geology from that. And we use also gravity and magnetic studies because it's really frustrating when you're a geologist to work in submarine environments because you can never really get there and walk there and see a landscape. The bathymetry, is that using sonar? How do you get the topographic map? You get the topographic map by using acoustic signals that you sent to the seafloor and they are reflected and they come back. And the time they come to go down and then come back can be used to calculate the depth. This technique also provides you the information to calculate the capacity of the seafloor to reflect the acoustic wave. So the better the reflection, the smoother the seafloor? No, actually, the better the reflection, the more chaotic the seafloor. Because if the seafloor is very chaotic, there will be many orientations possible to reflect the signal. And if it's very flat, it won't be as efficient. Was it the observations of the seafloor that first made you question the traditional view of mid-ocean ridges as chains of volcanoes? Yes, it's a combination. It's the observation of the seafloor because in the early 90s, we did a lot of submersible explorations of the seafloor in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Well, it was known that there were places where you had outcrops of serpentinized peridotite at the seafloor of slow ridges, but people interpreted these as kind of weird things related to transform faults or related to dipyrism or... But we were able to observe that these were, in fact, very massive rocks and that they did actually correspond to positive gravity anomalies and therefore couldn't possibly be diapiric because a diapir has to be lighter than its surrounding. And they looked like they were actually more massive than the surrounding. But it was also putting together the pieces that had been available for quite a few years, actually, 
concerning observations of micro-seismic activity at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, showing, for example, that you had a seismogenic layer and therefore probably a brittle layer that was at least eight kilometers thick. And also there had been some modeling work done in the late 70s and early 80s following a great French-American experiment on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And following that, some people pointed out that the actual valley of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge had to be a tectonic rift. And in order to make a tectonic rift, you need to have a thick plate. You don't do a rift if you have just no plate on axis. So it was kind of piecing these things together. Okay, so you said that in addition to volcanism, the main alternative mechanism that goes on at these mid-ocean ridges is faulting and I presume you mean extensional faulting because these things are spreading yeah 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 but just naively speaking when you have a normal extensional fault going on you'd expect the lithosphere to become thinner following from conservation of volume or mass how does that work I think the key is to consider that the faulting and the plate thickness as two separate things. The faulting is there because we have two plates that want to move apart and that are linked by a plate. So this plate has to be faulted. And the thickness of the plate is not related to faulting. It's primarily related to the thermal regime at the ridge axis. It's like a continually renewed plate that you have to fault. So if you have a certain spreading rate, so your domain stays at the ridge axis a given length of time, and you have a certain effective cooling rate, if you want, that will be a product of how much heat you get and how much heat you remove. Most of the heat you will provide will be provided by magma, so it will be related to the magma influx. And most of the cooling, it's hydrothermal circulation. So I have this cooling rate for my ridge, and this cooling rate tells me how thick my plate is going to be, and it will remain so because it will continuously be cooling. So in other words, your fault takes up material, but it doesn't take the isotherms up because the position of the isotherm is a function of the cooling rate at the ridge axis. It's one of the things that differentiates a diverging plate boundary from diverging region on Earth somewhere else. So that's fascinating. This is the crucial mechanism that you really discovered, which is that it's like a continuous process. The extensional fault removes the crust as it extends, but the rising mantle below underplates in a continuous process the bottom of the lithosphere. So the more you remove, the more new rock you attach to the bottom of the lithosphere. So it just keeps on going forever. Yeah, you attach it both because you have uplifted it because you were removing material with the fault. So it, it has attracted new material to fill the void, if you want. And when it gets there, it's being cooled because the ridge has a given thermal state. It's like a factory. With a conveyor belt moving newly minted material along the footwall of the fault. Yeah, exactly. It's a conveyor belt. So could extension along a given fault proceed forever? Observation shows that it doesn't. These large offset faults, they are typically active for one to two, in some instances, three million years, but no more. And a new fault is being created to take over. 
for a long time it has been thought that it was due to um, a flexure of the footwall of the fault, so the compartment that's underneath that is being uplifted. As it's been uplifted, the weight of the overriding compartment is being removed and therefore there is kind of a flexure. And this flexure kind of pushes on the fault surface, so it makes faulting more difficult. And at some point, mechanically, it becomes easier to just break through and start a new fault than to continue. So to answer your question, we don't know for sure, but what we know is that these faults don't last more than two or three million years, which corresponds to offsets of, depending on the spreading rate, but 10 to uh, 25 kilometers. So what you've really come up with is that there are two mechanisms fundamentally that accommodate the spreading. There's the volcanism, which would be either an actual volcano or injection of a dike, maybe. And then there's the faulting, where you get the plates essentially sliding in a brittle fashion past each other and extending. So what determines whether a given mid-ocean ridge will extend by faulting as opposed to magma injection and volcanic activity? It's not really whether and whether. It's going to be whether there is more role of faulting and less of magmatis activity or the opposite. You have all the different shades between the two extremes. The main factor is melt supply. Because if there is a lot of melt being supplied, it will have two effects. The melt will contribute to fill this void between the two plates that's opened by the plate divergence. And therefore, you won't need to have so much displacement on faults. Okay, so that's one factor. And the second factor is that the melt will carry heat. And if you bring more melt, you will therefore have a hotter thermal regime. And therefore, your plate will be thinner. And therefore, your faults won't reach as deep. The controlling factor is definitely melt supply, but it does it through two different mechanisms. So the more melt supply, the more volcanism. Yeah, the more melt supply, the more volcanism. And what determines how much melt supply comes to a particular spreading axis? So that's another of these questions that still need to be the focus of work. We know that at slow spreading ridges, there is clearly a tendency of the melt supply to vary along axis of the ridge. If you go along the ridge over distances typically of 50 kilometers, you will go from a region where the melt supply is less to a region where the melt supply is higher. It shows that the melt supply is focused to locations along the ridge axis that are typically distant by 50 kilometers. The origin is not really well understood. One possibility is that it comes from the melting process in the mantle. And the other possibility is that it's actually a loop. If the actual plate is thicker in places where you receive less melt because your thermal regime is colder and it becomes thinner towards the place where you receive more melt, then you create a topography at the base of the plate along the ridge axis. And the base of the plate is a change in, in rheological behavior. And so we expect that any melt coming underneath this topography, because it's lighter than the mantle, it goes up. And it will be easier for it to go up the slope towards the center of these volcanic regions than to go through into the less magmatic areas. So it's also possible that the supply of melt from the mantle is completely homogeneous along axis, but that the melt is focused 
by the change in lithosphere thickness, in which case it would be really a loop because the change in lithosphere thickness is a result of the melt supply. You've distinguished between so-called slow ridges and fast ridges. First of all, just tell me what spreading rates correspond to these types of ridges and could you give me an example of each type? The only fast ridge we have on Earth that is a big ridge, aside from the Bacarque basins in the Western Pacific, is the East Pacific rise. The spreading rates are typically 9 to 16 centimeters per year, and that's definitely fast. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge is our best example of a slow ridge, and the spreading rate is between less than 2 if you go all the way north of Iceland, to about four if you get to the equatorial Atlantic. So that would be slow. And then we have ridges like the Southwest Indian Ridge. We call them ultra-slow because it's less than two centimeters per year. What determines how fast a particular ridge is spreading? Is it processes that are happening locally? No, it's definitely due to other factors. The spreading rate is really uh, linked to far-field stresses acting on each separating plate. There are many types of forces that exist on the plates, but most likely the reason why the Pacific rise is fast is because the Pacific plates are bound by subductions on both the west and the east. One of the main driving forces of oceanic plate tectonics is the weight of the subducting plates because they are colder than the hot metal they get into and therefore they are heavier and this weight cools the plate faster. So the plates are pulled apart by subduction zones that are at the opposite end of the plate where the plate is being destroyed. Exactly. So thousands of kilometers away. Yeah, so that's why we talk about far-field forces. Is this another factor that determines the spreading mode, whether the speed of spreading affects whether you see a predominance of the volcanic type of spreading as opposed to the faulting type of spreading? The answer is yes, definitely. It's really related to the age of the actual region, that when the plates spread very fast, your actual region, if it's 10 kilometers wide, for example, it's going to be much younger on average, so it will have had much less time to cool than at a slow spreading ridge. And because this cooling rate is the controlling factor for the plate thickness, the actual plate thickness at fast spreading ridges is much less than at slow. And so the frontier between what we call fast and slow most likely corresponds to the spreading rate at which, given the melt supply, the plate thickness is so thin on axis that you don't need to have faulting. I see. So generally speaking, the faster the spreading, the thinner the plates because they don't have time to cool and the more volcanism you will get as opposed to faulting. Yeah. You mentioned that hydrothermal cooling plays an important role in these mid-ocean ridge processes because it's the primary way in which heat can be removed from the region at the lower end of the forming plate. But there may also be a wider role in the interaction between the crust and mantle and the ocean itself, and indeed the biology that's occurring at black smokers. Can you talk a bit about the hydrothermal processes and how they couple all these systems together? We've learned that these very vigorous hydrothermal circulations that you have at black smokers, they are characteristic of places along the ridges 
where you are currently in a phase of intense magmatic activity. In other words, you get these black smokers because the seawater that gets into the fractured upper crust or upper lithosphere, they are able to reach to very hot magmatic rocks or even magma. And it's important because, as you said, hydrothermal cooling is both key to the thermal regime of ridge axis, but it's also uh, key to all sorts of interesting biology and also key to very important heat and chemical exchanges between the solid earth and the ocean. So you mentioned the variation in space along the axis of a given ridge, maybe over 25, 30 kilometers, you will get a variation from primarily volcanic to primarily fault dominated. But in a given location, does it vary between the two modes? Do you think there might be like a migration of the spreading mode along the ridge axis? It does definitely vary. There are some places that have been fault dominated and become magma dominated. The cause of this evolution, we don't really uh, understand. But the other objective is to understand the composition of the oceanic lithosphere at large and what proportion may be fault-dominated. And it also has an impact on recycling of the plates into subduction zones because our planet has been tectonically active with uh, plate tectonics and ridges and subductions for at least 2.5 billion years. It means that there have been several cycles of subduction and therefore the mantle of our planet is made of a lot of relics of old oceanic lithosphere that has been recycled into the mantle. In other words, to understand the composition of the mantle, you need to know how much of the material from the sediments and from the water is sort of cycled back into the mantle at subduction zones. Yeah, and also if you have a subducted piece of oceanic lithosphere that had been created in a fault-dominated environment, you will have a lot of serpentinized peridotites all over the place. And this is not at all the same composition as magmatic rocks, and it hasn't exchanged matter in the same way with the hydrothermal fluids. So it affects the composition of the recycled material. I see. So just to explain, when water... At, especially at high temperature, reacts with peridotite, you get serpentine, and that's a mineral that has a different chemical composition from the original peridotite. So you would expect to see different chemistry. The composition is not that different. It's mostly you add water, but it's mostly that this serpentine that's there at crustal level, if you model your subducted material as made of a crust with basaltic products, and in fact it was made mostly of mantle-derived material. The composition is very different because the mantle-derived material is just a residue from melting and the magmatic material is the product of melting. So it has concentrated all sorts of uh, what we call incompatible elements. So the composition of the recycled material will be very different. The standard oceanic lithosphere has a structure that's been studied in ophiolites, particularly in Oman, for example, in which oceanic lithosphere has been emplaced onto continental lithosphere. And it consists of pillow lavas on the sea floor, below which are a dense network of dikes, which are referred to as sheeted dikes, below which are gabbros. Then you get the Moho transition zone, and then a mantle sequence of various kinds of peridotite. 
do the spreading mechanisms that you have just discussed generate this structure? Fast spreading ridges, yes. We've never been able to really look at the crust formed at these specific rise because there are very few faults. But what we've been able to see looks very much like the Oman or Newfoundland lithological sequence. And it makes a lot of sense because in order to create such a little faulted sequence, you need to be in a spreading environment with a very thin actual lithosphere. What are some of the most important questions about mid-ocean ridges that confront us today? Definitely the one that concerns the mechanism that modulates the melt supply to the ridge axis is still a very much open question. And then there are many questions remaining to understand the interplay between faulting volcanism and hydrothermal circulation. I would say more with a view of shorter timescales. So far, we've been talking mostly about rather long timescales, like a few hundred thousand years, one million years. But a volcanic eruption, even a major one, can occur in a matter of a few days or a few weeks or a few months. And hydrothermal cooling, the vigorous type of black smoker, hydrothermal circulation, it can extract enormous amount of heat very fast. These are processes that can operate over very short timescales compared to plate spreading. And we know very little about the time variability of magmatic processes. Mathilde Crenat, thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. For more about Geology Bytes, as well as pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, you can go to geologybytes.com.